there are close to 1,200 unicorns in the world. Japan is six. In Japan, lifetime employment is supposed to be dead, but it's not really. People stay at the companies for a long time. It's also hard to find customers in Japan if you're a startup. The third one is this whole idea of risk aversion, intolerance of failure. In Japan, it's like, no, you cannot fail. Failure is the end. It's, it's stigma. It's horrible. That's a big one, I think. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Liddy Beekelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share the second half of a conversation that I had with DC Poulter. DC Poulter is the author of the mystery novel To Kill a Unicorn about Japanese culture in Silicon Valley and the Tuttle Guidebook on Kansai Ben, colloquial Kansai Japanese. He's also the editor of Japonica, the journal of Japanese culture. He previously lived in Kobe as an engineer at Kobe Steel before founding two tech startups and returns to Japan frequently to visit sake breweries and eat nikuman. In the first half of our conversation, he shared his insights into the many things that changed in Japan since the 80s, why the successes of the Japanese education system may be holding it back, simple fixes that could allow for startups to succeed, and why there's still no substitute for in person communication in Japan. Be sure to go back and listen if you missed it. Also, please let me know if you have any thoughts about splitting these longer conversations into two episodes. I'm always working to make sure that the podcast is an easily accessible resource that meets my listeners' needs, so your feedback is essential. But for now, let's go ahead and get into the second half of our conversation. So, is there anything that hasn't changed in Japan that you're surprised by? Yeah, like pretty much everything else. It's 35, 40 years later, and other than seeing more foreigners and, uh, you know, and, and, Everybody using cell phones instead of uh, instead of pay phones and reading on their cell phones and, and instead of like having uh, mango on the on on the on the subways, it's shocking how little has changed. That I can go back to Japan now, I can walk around, and it's not like I came out of a time warp. Um, it's almost exactly the same, other than other than how you get on and off the trains. Some of that is good. I mean, there's the things I love about Japan haven't changed. It's still safe. It's still comfortable. It's still actually it's cheaper than it was before. There's still that sense of community that's really important. That is that sense of of pride in doing something right and the craftsmanship. So the culture has not changed at all. But then there's a downside to it as well, that the companies have not changed and how women are treated have not changed and how Japanese companies and, and company life is still, you know, okay, so maybe the lifetime employment system is officially dead, but it's it's not very dead. It's, it's, it hasn't changed a whole lot. And people join a company and they stay there for a very long time. And Everything that was wrong about company life, everything that's great about company life hasn't changed. Everything that was wrong about company life hasn't changed either. And I'm kind of sad about that. Yeah. Is there anything that you think is potentially about to change in Japan from what you've seen? I know it's always hard to predict. That's a really good question. The problem is everything I thought was about to change 30 years ago still hasn't changed. So I kind of 
wonder if it's going to change, but something has to change soon because, I mean, anyone who lives in Japan, this is not surprising. The society is aging. The, the, the population is getting smaller. There's fewer workers to support the, the business. There's fewer people with incomes that are supporting the retired people and the infirm people. So something needs to change in order to kind of support the society. The things that ought to change are women ought to be given more responsibility, more women ought to be working, more immigration, as much as it's changed a lot, is still you go to a big Japanese company and yeah, there are foreigners there on contracts who are, you know, computer programmers or lawyers or whatever, but they are not given, they're not treated the same way with the same responsibility that they're going to become managers and they're going to become and have a have a career in the company. So I, I think that either that changes or you know, Japanese um, society continues to turn inward and kind of goes on this downhill path that it seems to be on right now. I mean, you get a real sense of people feeling like they're not as rich as they were before, that there are these societal, you know, it, when I was there in the bubble, it was like, oh my God, we're the greatest in the world. We're going to change the world. Everything's wonderful. Let's party. And now it's like, well, you know, things aren't so great and, you know, companies don't pay very much in comparison to foreign companies. And, you know, so I think company life, company attitude uh, and society as a whole needs to change. Um, And if it does, you know, it's either going to change. And Japan has been very, very good in the past of like not changing and then suddenly saying, yep, okay, uh, that didn't work. Let's change. Um, where I think in the U.S. it's much more of a gradual process. Uh, it tends to be a bit more from the top, where finally the government and the bureaucracy says, "Yeah, this didn't work. Let's do something different." And until then, you know, you don't have the the, the same sort of of uh, people in the U.S. are just outspoken and and troublemakers that kind of push things along. So it'll be interesting to see and. Looking forward to continuing to be a a part of the process from the outside. Yeah, definitely. We'll just have to wait and see. So then would you mind telling us a little bit more about some of the change makers in Japan, potentially in the startup community? Would you mind sharing a little bit more about your experiences there? Sure. So I also wrote an article, one of my most popular articles ever, about why Japan has so few startups or so few successful startups or startups in the Silicon Valley way of thinking of what a startup is. So this isn't you know, the defining thing, but as a good way of looking at it or one way of looking at it, there are something like close to 1,200 unicorns in the world. A unicorn is a startup that's now worth a billion dollars or more. 1,200, that's a lot of startups. Uh, that's a lot of unicorns. The word unicorn came from the idea that Everybody talked about these things, but they didn't actually exist. They were mythical. And now there's 1,200 of them, so they're not so mythical anymore. Of the 1,200, 650 are in the U.S., 300 are in China, and about 100 are in India. And so that's kind of the majority of them. Japan's the second biggest, well, third biggest economy in the world. China is the second biggest, has 300 uh, unicorns. Japan is six. Six. That's kind of sad. But it's not shocking either. Japan is really, really, really good at big companies. 
<laughs> really, you know, the, the world leader when it comes to manufacturing and not yet very good at building startups. And my article listed seven reasons, and I'll just mention them really briefly. And there's three of them I want to I want to go into a little bit more detail about. So the first one is the job market in the U.S. It, you can you can quit your job, you can do a startup. You know, I have a great idea. I'm like, I'm going to do a startup. You can do it for two years, it fails because most startups fail. You can go back and get another job. In Japan, you know, lifetime employment is not dead, but it's also I mean, it's not. It, it, it's supposed to be dead, but it's not really. People stay at the companies for a long time. If you leave and, and take another job, it's hard to get back on a career path again. It's also hard to find customers in Japan if you're a startup. In Japan, Japanese companies take a long time. They are very risk averse. They want you to prove yourself first. Where in America, it's like, well, if you have something we need, you know, we don't care if there's a few bugs in it. If it's cheaper, if it saves me money and time, we'll buy it. Not everybody, but it's a lot easier to find customers. It's hard working with Japanese big companies and even consumers too. The third one is this whole idea of risk aversion, intolerance of failure, bankruptcy being kind of the end of the world. In fact, um, my wife's family, when they moved homes, would not buy a house where the previous owner uh, had gone bankrupt. <laughs> like that's bad luck. You know, we don't want to be associated with failure bad feng shui or, or whatever you want to call it. In Silicon Valley, failure is considered a learning experience, right? 90% of startups fail. You fail. Okay, great. It was worth a shot. Uh, let's move on to the next one. And there's really no stigma associated with it. In fact, you'll hear somebody like me, I'll go out in front of startups and I'll say, I am a five-time founder with two exits, which means I have three failures. And like, oh, that's great. You have two exits. Yeah, I have three failures too, but we don't, you know, and, and I'll talk about those and I'll talk about why they failed and what I learned from them and why that made the next one better. In Japan, it's like, no, you cannot fail. Failure is the end. It's it's stigma. It's horrible. So that's that's a big one, I think. Lack of acquisitions. So in the US, you build a startup, uh, it gets to 20, 50, 100 million dollars in revenue and Google comes along or Facebook comes along or, you know. Somebody comes along and says, here's a billion dollars. We love your product. We, here's a billion dollars. We want to buy it from you. doesn't happen in Japan. There just are not acquisitions. There are not corporate M&A. And so you can build it, but then what? How do you actually make money from it? How does an investor make money from it? So there's no easy way to be successful in a startup short of becoming a big company. Then I think the other third big one is... Americans are really into money <laughs> and having more money than other people and having nicer cars than other people and having a bigger house than other people and showing off your wealth and having better clothes and having more experiences or whatever. Um, and the way to do that is to become richer than other people. And the way you become richer than other people is either you, you know, climb the corporate ladder and become a CEO uh, or you do a startup and now you're a billionaire or at least a multimillionaire. And there's just not that striving over wealth in Japan. And there is much more of a, I don't want to stand out. I do want social harmony. I want to be part of, uh, I want to be you know, a regular person in society instead of like standing out and driving around in my Ferrari. So without the people saying, yes, I want nothing in life other than to become a billionaire and I'm willing to do whatever it takes, including like almost killing people to do it, working myself to death, working everyone around me to death, getting everyone's money, 
you know, and, and kind of building this lottery ticket because 90% chance of failure without that striving, without that desire to be rich above all else, the, <laughs> the startup world doesn't really work. That's kind of what drives people to quit their safe job that gives them an income and go off and start a startup. And I'll just briefly mention education in Japan, as you know, very intimately is a lot about rote memorization, facts and figures, being able to pass multiple choice tests. Japanese education is so much better than American education, but especially for the average person, I mean, uh, the American education system just fails most of its students, but is a lot better teaching creativity. And when it comes to startups, it's about thinking outside the box. It's about thinking about things that nobody else has thought of. It is about putting together pitch decks and business plans and all the things that don't fit in neatly into the boxes and just going out and being different. So I think the education system just kind of is really good in Japan in getting people to be an integral part of the society and being able to work in a, in a job that kind of gives them you know, the, a set of rules within which, which to work within. And the U.S. is like, well, <laughs> you, you don't know how to do basic math, but you, you can put together a pitch deck and be a good salesperson. And then lastly is immigration, right? Probably half or more, I think the number I saw was 55% of startups in Silicon Valley were founded by immigrants. Um, and the ones who weren't founded by immigrants are, are mostly second generation people as well. So just that whole immigration culture uh, and, and then having the connections back to the other places, being very globally focused is something you just don't see in Japan nearly as much. And even in the US, I mean, you get outside of Silicon Valley or outside the big cities, it's very different. And that's why you know Silicon Valley is kind of a unique place, even within the US. It's very focused on, on startups, but also for the most part, you know, has a very global mindset and very international group of people. And it's not your typical American you know, small town. So are there any specific ways that you think things could or should change in Japan that would make successful startups more likely? Or do you think it's likely that maybe the startup ecosystem in Japan will just be a little bit different? It'll just be a startup ecosystem with Japanese characteristics that may not function the same way as other startup ecosystems. So when I published the article, I got a lot of interesting comments. Uh, a lot of people saying, you know, Japan is wonderful. We don't want to copy Silicon Valley. We don't want to be like the US. And there's a lot to that. And I agree with that completely. But then there's also other models. There's there's the Silicon Valley of Israel. There's a Silicon Valley of India. There's you know Bangalore. There's a Silicon Valley of you know pretty much everywhere else you go, except really Japan. And there's places that are trying to, including Fukuoka has had a long history of, of being very receptive to startups and small businesses. So I think the question is not how do we make Japan or, or Japanese startups more like Silicon Valley, but how can we take the best aspects of startup world and give the people who want it more flexibility, more ability to think outside the box and not have to go through the kind of the corporate life. Although I should mention on the flip side, one of the reasons everyone leaves American companies to do a startup is because American companies don't do innovation. They just do the same thing over and over again. And they've pretty much outsourced their innovation to startups. They just buy up startups and they spend a lot for it. But they think, you know, well, 90% of them are going to fail and we don't really have the way to manage it. So why don't we just buy up the ones that are successful uh, instead of trying to do it ourselves and, and it not working? Having worked at a Japanese company, there's a lot more innovation. There's a lot more research. There's a lot more ability to say, I got a great idea. 
I think this would help the company. Why don't we work on this and getting budget and being able to do that? Uh, whereas the American idea is, well, okay, the company's not going to do it. So I'm just going to make my own startup. So there's a lot more corporate innovation, I think, in Japan than there is in the U.S. And that's also one of the reasons why you see fewer people leaving companies, because they do feel like the, that creative side, that they have an idea, they can build it, they can bring it to market without having to do it all themselves because they have the whole company there behind them. But I also see a lot of people who really would, you know, don't want to be corporate warriors. They don't want to be salary men, but they do have ideas they want to bring to market. And it's hard to do that in Japan. How could that change? You know, there's little bits and pieces there that you see Japan or Japanese cities trying. So Fukuoka, as I mentioned, is trying to be great for startups. I think Kobe has a startup visa that you can apply for if you're an entrepreneur. And some of the other cities, uh, there, there's startup uh, hubs in different places. And Kobe has a startup hub as well that I, I mentor at. But what you tend to see are small businesses as opposed to like kernels of big businesses. I think that changes the more you have Japanese people going to school overseas and getting more of an international worldview, um, being able to think outside of the Japanese market because, you know, Japan's a big market by itself, but it's just a small piece of the world. So that may change gradually. You know, if I were, you know, somebody made me minister of education in Japan or something like that, I'd say, you know, let's. Let, let's have more scholarships for people to study MBAs overseas. Let's have more ability for teaching entrepreneurship in Japan and building accelerators and kind of having the whole infrastructure that you have in the U.S. of angel investment groups that then go to venture capitalists, which you know have an acceleration system that kind of teaches you how to build the big startups. So it's coming and there's bits and pieces of it there, but how do you get people to say, yeah, I'm going to quit my job at uh, Mitsubishi and go build my startup? And that may just come naturally when, you know, once there's some successes and people see that there's a lot of opportunities. I do want to call out like the greatest unicorn in, in almost world history other than Google is Uniqlo. I mean, Uniqlo started with nothing. It was just like, well, Japan ought to have something like the Gap, but we can do it better. And uh, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, he built... Uh, he, he built the, the greatest clothing uh, uh, company in, in the world. And, you know, it, it's uh, ubiquitous within Japan, but it's pretty big throughout Asia and even starting to get into the U.S. So it's not impossible, but it takes people like him to say, yeah, OK, I don't want to work at Gap. I want to come up with something because, you know, Gap did some things that are good, but they don't understand the Japanese market. They don't know how to do this right. Let's do it better. And he did. Uh, and Zozo, I think, um, I forgot the guy's name, who's like shooting up in the space shuttle or something, is like the richest man in Japan. So you do need more renegades like that. But as long as those people are encouraged and given support and economic resources and visas to allow them, not just for them to come in, to, but to bring in the teams that they need on the marketing and, and software development and other places like that, and a little bit less rigidness from the government, right? Okay, so Uber. And Airbnb. I mean, they're everywhere in the world. You have Uber and Airbnb in Japan. It's like, no, that breaks the rules. You know, that will hurt the taxi companies. That will hurt the hotels. We won't allow it. Like, um, yeah, but now we have something much better than the taxi companies in the U.S. And we have something, an alternative to the hotels in the U.S. It's so much better than staying in a touristy hotel. And Japan's very reluctant to, you know, on the government side to say, 
yeah, those rules are, are old. Let's let's give more flexibility. So, you know, I'd love to see the bureaucracy be less risk averse, more open to, to change and flexibility. Yeah, definitely. And maybe it'll be similar to the process that you alluded to before, where the buildup is very, very slow. And then all of a sudden, things just change. <laughs> Exciting times, definitely. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about your personal experience where maybe perhaps you've experienced a communication breakdown that you think was due to differences in culture? Yeah. So the best example I have is is the one I already mentioned where the, the joint venture was doing everything right and doing everything wrong uh, because they were speaking perfect English and they were talking to each other, but they weren't understanding each other. Um, and then there's me and my wife, right? <laughs> Which is anytime you have a, uh, a husband and wife or two people, uh, you will always have communication uh, breakdowns and failures. And if it's an international marriage where one person is speaking Japanese, the other person is speaking English, and more importantly, one person is thinking like an American and one person is thinking like a Japanese person, you are going to have communication failures, you're going to have breakdowns, you're going to have frustrations. And the way around it is to be sympathetic and empathetic and listen carefully and try not to get angry and try not to get frustrated. Um, and if you do that, then you can have a, a great marriage and uh, you can have a Japanese life in in uh, Los Angeles and a um, American life in Kobe. And business is, is the same way. It's uh, if you have a Japanese office and a U.S. office, there's going to be frustrations. They're not going to understand each other. It's, it's the Mars and Venus sort of thing. But you have to get past that and you have to communicate and beyond just language. And that really means like being there in person, being a part of it, not just doing a Zoom call every once in a while. So then if you were chatting with somebody who is going to Japan for business for the first time, and they only had time to learn one thing about the country or its culture ahead of time, what would you decide to teach them? Oh, uh, <laughs> I write articles every week and I've, I've been doing it for a year and a half. And uh, so that means I've come up with something close to 50 different things, which is the one thing you have to know. So trying to pick out the one one thing is always a challenge. So before the pandemic, I brought my sister to Japan. And she'd never been in Japan before. In fact, she'd never been overseas. And she wanted to learn Japanese before she came. So she got one of the online language things and she tried to learn it and you know gave up pretty quickly because <laughs> learning a language is, is a big challenge. But she learned five words, seven words, something like that. You know, the, the most obvious ones. Sumimasen, arigato, konnichiwa, you know, itadakimasu. And, you know, I would introduce her to friends, family, this is my sister. And, you know, she'd bow and she'd say, you know, hajime mashite. And my God, it just like opened up the room. It's, it's, there was such a appreciation that she had gone to the, <laughs> the hassle of learning five words, right? That, you know, the typical tourist comes in, doesn't know anything, lives in their own bubble. And here somebody has taken just a little bit of time to appreciate, you know, the bowing, the hajime mashite. It takes what an hour to learn these things, and you know, you're you're not going to become fluent enough to to walk around and have conversations. But people appreciate that, and, and especially, I think 
Japanese people really appreciate that other people have gone through the effort of learning a little bit about the culture, a little bit of the language. You don't need much. You don't need a lot at all just to show that you're you're trying and that you appreciate their world and want to be part of their world. So if you're going for business, yeah, you know, if you need a translator, you're going to hire a translator. If you need a cultural bridge, you're going to get somebody like you who, you know, who can, who can be a real cultural bridge. But if you're just going over to have a meeting, you know, what you can do is limited, but really I think Americans come in and, and they're like, well, we're from the headquarters. We're Americans. We do things right. We're better than you. It's like, no, no wrong way. Go in few words, learn how to bow, learn how to hand the business cards properly. And it just creates a different, a uh, whole different kind of communication environment that's much more open. The second thing, the second of the, the most important thing for business is it's not what happens in the meeting. It's what happens after the meeting. And everyone's talked about this for, you know, decades, but it's really true. Um, and Americans have this idea of, okay, we have a great product. Here's our product. Here's our pitch. You need it. Here's why you need it. Here's how much it costs. And the Japanese uh, team will say, okay, that's interesting. Thank you. We'll, we'll discuss it and we'll get back to you. And then they're shocked when nothing happens. They're like, yeah, we killed it, right? This is exactly what they need. They loved it. And they don't really realize that, you know, there's nobody in that room that by themselves who's able to, who, to, to give, uh, who's going to give you an answer as opposed to the American one, you know, the boss there is like, oh, okay, this is great. We're going to buy it. End the story. Um, in Japan, it, it very is a community um, a group decision. So they're not going to give you an answer right there. They're going to go back and discuss it afterwards. But they're also, they need to know who you are. They need to trust you. They need to know that you're not just selling them a product, but that you are starting a relationship, that you are going to be there um, and it's really tough for startups because <laughs> uh, you don't have that history and you don't have the product really finished yet. But if you build that relationship, then the discussion about the product becomes a lot more serious. So really the point of that trip should not be to go and pitch your product. It should be to go and have the dinner afterwards where you're drinking and you get to know the people personally so that you can begin to build that relationship. It's going to be a long process. It's not just going in and saying, I got a product, it's cheaper at competitors, uh, send me a PO. Not going to happen. But you build a relationship with the dinner, with the drinking, with the, you know, with with you know, kind of the communication between the people. And it's just a kind of different way of of doing things, but that's that's the way it works in Japan. If you don't do it that way, you're wasting your time uh, on that trip. Yeah, hundred percent. So thank you so much for sharing your time on the podcast today and for sharing all of your wisdom and insights into Japan, past and future. So is there anything that you wish I had asked you or anything you wish you'd had a little bit more time to talk about today? Yes, indeed. There is one thing I wanted to bring up. So um, I have just published a novel, or actually the publisher published a novel called To Kill a Unicorn. You can find it on Amazon. It is about Silicon Valley. It's about a startup in Silicon Valley that's... Um, kind of doing some very suspicious things. And the main characters are uh, Japanese and Japanese-Americans. Uh, one of them is a, uh, a hack. The main character is a Japanese-American hacker um, who works at a company that um, is not Google. I have to say that so I don't get sued. It is not Google. It has some things that are similar to Google, but it is not Google. And he's trying to find out. He uses hacking skills to try to find his missing friend who 
works at this startup. So the book is half about startups and half about Japanese culture and his kind of challenge of being half Japanese, half American, and having his his mother who's from Kyoto, who's a tea ceremony teacher, kind of in his head all the time. So I think people who listen to this podcast in particular will really enjoy this novel. Uh, there's a lot of Japanese jokes in there. The main character, his English name is Ted Hara. His Japanese name is Hara Tatsu. So Tatsu is, is becomes Ted. Um, but as you know, Hara Tatsu means to be pissed off, to be annoyed. And uh, it's the thing his mother says all day, uh, Hara Tatsu, Hara Tatsu. So she named her son Hara Tatsu. So you get an idea of the problem he had growing up. Um, but no one who doesn't speak, if you don't speak Japanese, you're not going to get any of this, right? So there's a lot of things like that in the book that uh, Japanese speakers, I think, or people who are familiar with Japanese culture will really appreciate that uh, we'll just go over the head of everyone else. So I hope uh, all of your listeners are interested in the book, again, called To Kill the Unicorn. Great. I unfortunately have not had the chance to pick up a copy yet, but I'm really looking forward to it when I'm back in a position where I can buy a physical book. So great. Yeah. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about that book and other articles that were mentioned in this episode. And thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. Please let me know what you think about splitting up these longer interviews into two episodes. My goal is to make this podcast a resource that best meets the needs of my listeners, so I'm always eager to learn from you how I can do that better. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are a few things that you can do. You can check out my coffee page, where you can contribute once, monthly, or even help raise money for a new mic. That will hopefully improve the audio quality of future interviews. You can find the link to do that in the description of this episode. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondou.